0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everybody and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sebastian Rojas Cabal, one of your hosts in this channel, and today we'll be talking to Oyshek Sirkar about his new book, Violent Modernities: Cultural Lives of Law in the New India, which was just published by Oxford University Press. Professor Sirkar teaches at the Jindal Global Law School in India. Oshik Sarkar, welcome to the show. Thanks, Seba. It's really it's really great to have you here.
1: Yes, I'm I'm excited about this conversation.
0: Asking the question that we usually start these episodes with is a little is interesting because you in fact grapple with it in one of the essays in the book. The generic version would be something like how did you become a critical legal scholar or something like that. But taking your essay into account, I'd like to ask instead How did you come to think of yourself as a male feminist jurisprudent?
1: You know, that expression carries three words, male, feminist, and and jurisprudent. And and I talk about why I am um, using that description to talk about myself in the closing chapter of the book, which is a more autobiographical account of my scholarly journey. So... In many ways, the three words are not an expression of an identity that I necessarily uh, would subscribe to. I think all the three words do the work of uh, being, you know, placeholders of of sorts. What do I mean when I say that? Let me attend to the second and the third word first, and then go back to the first one. When I joined, you know, law school in uh, 1999. You know, not that I was uh, somehow thinking about myself as a lawyer already, but that sense of identifying myself as a lawyer or being able to call myself as a lawyer or a legal scholar or, you know, how, how however I would want to think about presenting my uh, public self came much later. But it was into the first year of law school that I encountered Feminism with a big F. And this encounter happened in two ways. The first was uh, the opportunity to join an anti child sexual abuse campaign in the city where I was studying, in the Western Indian city of Pune. And uh, the campaign was uh, being hosted at uh, one of India's oldest feminist documentation centers called Aluchana, And, you know, it wasn't the case that I, I was unaware of the word feminism, but the intimacy with which I encountered the word was during a workshop that some of the initiators of the campaign were carrying out. And the word suddenly appeared in a way that made me think of it not as something that's distant, that's something that's out there, but something that enabled me to start questioning about who I was. Uh, and, And that's kind of a profound moment of sorts, uh, you know, when you're, when you're uh, 18 or 19, when you ask yourself that question, who are you? And I think that the, the encounter with feminism in any way, in many ways brought to the fore the question of maleness, you know, much later I encountered expressions like, you know, cisgender or so on and so forth. So that, that, that in many ways was the, is the relationship between Feminism and were well, the word male for me. And I also, as I as I mentioned earlier, I think about the word male as a as a placeholder of sorts because almost every feminist space that I've moved through since you know, my early law school days uh, have primarily been populated by those who identified as, as female. And so uh, the pronounced sense of my maleness in those spaces was something that I had to grapple with and grapple with in slightly complicated ways. One of the ways that I continue to grapple with the question of maleness is to ask when I think about myself as feminist, am I playing the role of somebody who's appropriating something that doesn't belong to me in many ways? And it's a struggle. And I think. Feminism's kind of been an ally in that struggle. You know, the feminism has been particularly hospitable in enabling me to think through that struggle. Now, coming to the third word, which is jurisprudent, is a word that I encountered much later in life, you know, much after becoming a lawyer and a law professor, is when I started my PhD. The word suggests someone who tries to build a relationship of care with the law. I hadn't think about I hadn't thought about my relationship with law in those terms until I started my PhD till prior to that uh, as every kind of critical minded person who's located within the discipline of law would do would be to kind of set themselves up against the law think about the law as the site of as the site of violence you know the thing that does bad things and to be contra law was in many ways the the the, the radical posturing that i would perform as a a critical legal uh, scholar uh, Lapsed activist, so on and so forth. And in many ways, feminism aided that process of being able to think about the law critically, think about the role that law plays as a discourse of power in maintaining hierarchies of gender, so on and so forth. But I also, you know, when I started the, the PhD program Uh, encountered a group of academics at the Melbourne Law School who have for a long time been thinking about, you know, if you're so critical of the law, why haven't we abandoned it yet? And it's a simple question, really. I mean, is this a matter of fidelity or is there something else at work? And so, a jurisprudent then is somebody who is not necessarily embracing the law because they're in love with it, but one who takes that relationship, that difficult relationship with law, with seriousness. And coming to think of it, you know, life in many ways is about living through difficult relationships. You're not always able to abandon people or ideas or things that we disagree with. So the word jurisprudent would, you know, would signify that for me, which is to take seriously my relationship with the law as a discipline and a discourse that I've been with as somebody who's trained in the law, but who's also training other people in that discipline, you know, as a teacher. So what does it mean for me to be critical of the law while at the same time not letting go of it?
0: Thank you for sharing that journey. And I want to jump perhaps a little backwards in our thinking about this conversation because you wrote the book or like you wrote the essays that end up being in the book between 2008 and 2017 and these essays will speak to the construction of what you call the new India. And I would just like to set up the context, or I would love for you to set up the context for us about, like, what is that new India? What are its main features, or some of its main features?
1: So as the title of the book suggests, the book's called Violent Modernities, it's a somewhat counterintuitive clubbing of two words that seem to be in a slightly complicated relationship. We would, in commonsensical terms, not think about violence as something that is a necessary product of modernity uh, modernity steps in in many ways to um, undo violence to stop violence to help us uh, step out of violence that's the standard story we would generally hear so the time period of the, the that the essays cover are attending to a temporal moment which is the year 1991 in the history of contemporary India. That year is important because it was the year that marked a radical shift in India's economic policies. It was the year when the government decided to open the economy up uh, for foreign capital to come in, um, as it were. So uh, in many ways, it's the development story You know, uh, where India steps into the world of global capital in many ways. Now, it was an interesting moment because the Indian constitution uh, declares the state to be socialist. So the, the Indian state had to work out a way to think about itself, where how do I actually embrace global capital, while at the same time remaining committed to uh, that word that appears in the Constitution? So the state itself was, you know, undergoing some kind of a reimagination of, of its, its own constitution. Now, this turn in 1991, was also accompanied by something else. Now, this is where the idea of the new India emerges. And it's not my creation, really, this expression. A lot of people have used it, both scholars from, you know, across the disciplines, as well as kind of political commentators like Arundhati Roy have been writing about uh, this, this particular moment. So the economic term is accompanied by a public image of the Hindu right wing that was uh, prior to that moment not as robustly presented as the early 90s enabled uh, for the Hinduism. Now one would think about the coexistence of the emergence of a certain kind of globalized economic move and a kind of religious conservative move to also be part of this of a similar story. Is you know you uh, a certain move towards globalized ideas of modernity with uh, foreign capital coming in, Uh, You have MTV entering, you know, uh, middle class homes, cable TV showing you uh, soap operas, other parts of the world only populated by white people, which you had never seen before. And so there's going to be a certain kind of revisionist backlash from, you know, those who think that Indian culture needs to be protected from the invasion of Western values. But that's the standard story. The more nuanced story about the new India is not that the rise of the Hindu right that also began with the early 1990s was only a backlash against the emergence of a certain kind of westernized idea of modernity that India was embracing. The response of the Hindu right was also one which embraced this modernity wholeheartedly. So the Hindu right-wing government that is currently in power was not in power at the center at that time. The Congress government was in power and the Congress government uh, enabled the kind of, you know, liberalization, economic liberalization processes that on the face of it made India appear modern, but at the same time produced deep inequalities, particularly with regard to you know, labor conditions, the introduction of labor laws that made uh, the, the condition of workers more precarious. So all of that was happening alongside the re-emergence of a certain kind of Hindu nationalism, which wasn't only opposing the so-called westernization or western influence over Indian culture, but also was walking towards an embracing of a certain set of economic values. A shorthand word for those economic values might be neoliberalism. I don't want to hold it to that word alone. And that becomes apparent when the BJP finally comes in power, the Congress Party had already enabled the process and the BJP builds on that to produce a sophisticated concoction that fuses Hindu nationalism with neoliberalism. And that's a deadly concoction of sorts. Uh, it's a deadly concoction because what would otherwise be thought of as nativist, which is a certain kind of conservative backlash, presents itself as modern. So, you know, in, a, in many ways, the New India then is a particularly toxic instance of the coming together of a certain kind of Hindu right-wing ideology and neoliberalism. And what this does is that it exacerbates not only pre-existing hierarchies of class that have al- always been present, but it also exacerbates and normalizes new forms of hierarchies um, based on culture, religion, and, and caste.
0: And this idea of repackaging Hindu ideas as or traditional ideas as modern and I'm using traditional. Now, I'm making a lot of commitments here because that's in and of itself uh, a discussion we could have. That is going to keep coming up in the conversation. But I want to, to zoom in into the first essay. And in the first essay, which is called Spectacles of Emancipation, you describe rights, and I am quoting you here, as a hydra-headed organism. And then you write, "All right, seeking enterprises, especially those on the left, need to tread cautiously the path of using the law to claim them, that is to claim rights. That's the end of the quote. Later in that same chapter, kind of reflecting on that issue, you write about two trajectories of emancipation. What are those trajectories and why is it important to think about them?
1: Let's think about this in in two parts. Why do I use the Hydra metaphor to begin with? As the Greek mythological story goes, Hydra is the the serpentine female demon figure, as it were. And in Hydra's battle with Hercules, what happens is that whenever Hercules cuts off one of Hydra's many heads, two further heads emerge. Why are rights a Hydra-headed organism for me? Because they do two things simultaneously. They emancipate and regulate at the same time. So if emancipation is the story of achievement, victory, solidarity, you know, so on and so forth, regulation is the new head that emerges where it might kind of catch you by stealth. Um, And this was something which was apparent at the time when I was writing that essay, because it was interesting to see how the social movements uh, at that time were relying heavily on the state to pass social justice-related legislation. and the state, in fact, and uh, you know, went into a, a certain kind of legislative overdrive. And uh, that particular period in uh, contemporary Indian history is understood as one where one would celebrate the fact that the state was actually listening to what social movements were saying. And so that was really what I call, you know, spectacles of emancipation. So it's the, the blinding spectacle of a good law that we feel is a moment of achievement that advances the promise of emancipation, That, but it would inevitably be accompanied by some form of regulation. Now, this is an argument that whose conceptual origins lie somewhere else. So I was able to make this argument by holding on to the idea of emancipation one and two, um, the two trajectories of emancipation that I later talked about in the essay. Now, my interlocutors in uh, in in being able to advance this conceptualization are Karl Marx and the postcolonial historian Dipesh Chakrabarty, and I make reference to uh, one of Marx's early essays. Uh, on the Jewish question, which is uh, a fantastic essay uh, that talks about many things. But one of the things that I found particularly telling in that essay is uh, Marx's critique of liberalism, which interestingly is not really the key thing that Marx talks about in that essay. And uh, Marx himself introduces two ways of thinking about emancipation in uh, on the Jewish question one which he calls political emancipation and the other which he calls human emancipation. And uh, there's, a, uh, there's a much quoted line from that essay uh, where Marx says that what might liberal, lib, you know, uh, liberal ways of thinking about emancipation get us to is it will get us political emancipation in the form of the freedom to own property, for example. But the freedom to own property will not actually lead to the freedom from property. And so that in many ways is the kind of double bind of emancipation and regulation. It produces the spectacle that you can own property, but to be able to own property is in many ways being regulated by property or uh, on the terms that property sets up for you emancipation too. And, you know, as I mentioned in the preface to the book, that the essays also chart a certain kind of thinking trajectory for me. I was particularly more kind of taken up by structuralist ways of thinking about rights in that first essay. So I am paying attention to the ways in which class is kind of the base of the superstructure of the Indian state. That structuralist approach uh, helps me make an argument. That there is no escape from capitalism in many ways, but the 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 I didn't want to kind of completely give up on inescapability or or hopelessness, as it were. A point that I get to by the time I get to the end of the book, which is, you know, a, a, a certain kind of ethical commitment to failure. So given that I had just made a move from being a full-time activist to a full-time academic, I wanted to learn lessons from social movements. I wanted to hold on to the promise of struggle and, you know, the commitment of social movements to uh, alternative imaginations of rights. Um, and not to think about rights only as a language that we um, end up using that's produced by the state. The essay, of course, says that that is the overwhelming language and that is why left movements need to be careful and cautious about how they use that language. So emancipation to the idea of emancipation too comes from Deepesh Chakraborty, who again uses the same piece by Marx uh, to talk about what he calls two histories of capital. Capital, uh, history one being the more kind of teleological account of capital that moves in a linear direction uh, that standard Marxist Marxist account would paint um, and he introduces a kind of uh, he wants to provincialize in many ways that that account of capital, to think about how might the trajectories of capitalism go in directions not envisaged by, you know, European Marxism. And so that opportunity that Chakraborty opens up allows me then to Think about alternative ways of imagining the idea of rights, which is what emancipation too is. And there are other instances of this. I'm not making a particularly novel claim in that piece. Part Chatterjee's idea of political society, where you step out of the language of liberal rights to develop other means of engagement with the state form uh, would again, you know, be the approximation of emancipation too for me. But as the chapter suggests, while I, I remain open to the possibilities of alternative imagination it does end on a no- note of hopelessness i think that sense of hopelessness carries through the other chapters as as well so that would eman- that's what emancipation to that's what emancipation to will be for me and which is why you know the closing portion of the chapter lets go of attending to achievements that social movements have made and i go back to for example naxalite poetry
0: And I think that's crucial. I wanted to ask you more to perhaps elaborate on this idea of emancipation to a thinking along or thinking with two two expressions you use in this chapter, I think, which are one embodied practices of resistance and the other one is uh, insurrectionary knowledges. And that comes up when you're talking about poetry. So I would love to hear you say more about that.
1: These are indications of an early move I think in my in my thinking where being trained as a lawyer you're not really trained to read material that is non-legal and it almost seemed to me uh, when writing that that piece that every time I was going back to material that was produced by a lawyer or produced by a social movement that is attending to the question of law front and center, interested in legal reform or using the means of the courts, to achieve some semblance of justice were increasingly appearing as extremely inadequate to think about alternative forms of emancipation. And by alternative, I don't necessarily mean uh, a way of thinking that overcomes the trappings of an overbearing violent structure, Uh, but it opens up ordinary possibilities that might produce promises, fleeting promises, uh, pr- promises that don't work with larger promises of you know uprooting the system for example so this is not revolutionary you know this is not 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 a turn towards revolution in in many ways but to kind of attend to more quotidian ways of thinking about everyday resistances and so which is what makes me turn towards naxalite poetry or uh you know dalit poetry uh in the in the last section i personally feel I don't do a great job there because I'm I wasn't, you know, trained as a lawyer to read poetry. But I think I was kind of doing what came instinctively to me, which is to in many ways step out of the space of conventional law and try and see if imaginations of justice might be available in spaces outside of it. The point about embodiment can be thought of thought about in two ways one of course you can romanticize embodiment you know where you think about protesting bodies on the front lines you know and and that that would in many ways lead me to the same trap of producing spectacles that I am arguing against in the piece. I think for me, embodiment was partly that, of course, to draw inspiration from what protesting bodies do, uh, you know, at the moment of, of enacting Uh, Resistance. But I think embodiment is also about the kind of affective response that something like poetry produces. What happens on most occasions is that when you're reading legal material, that possibility of intimacy doesn't develop between you and the material that is being read. I think when the genre shifts, you know, where you start attending to material that is coming out of, uh, you know, poetry or the short story the literary as uh, as the as the site I think the reader cannot but get implicated
0: and and we will go back to that frustration and that kind of concern with aesthetics in, but before we do that and I want to kind of piggyback on you bringing up uh, Partha Chatterjee's idea of civil society versus political society to ask the next question. That distinction between civil society and political society that Chatterjee makes, in a sense, maps onto another distinction that is key for you when, like through your writing, which is the distinction between responsibility and responsabilization, which is itself linked to another big theme in the book or across the essays, which is your concern with... Uh, the ways in which the expansion of the rule of law has depoliticizing effects. Holding kind of those three things together, I want to talk about queer politics, which is one of the things you, you think as you think about these issues. So perhaps uh, touching on, on these the, these things I've mentioned, tell us about the trajectory or how the trajectory of queer politics illustrates kind of this dimension of legal development.
1: Right. Okay. So quickly, I think, one can end up writing a book about the, uh, the difference or the similarities between responsibility and responsabilization. The shorthand way in which I deploy these two words in the book is where I think about responsabilization as a mode of governance. It's a regulatory mechanism that uh, state, proto-state you know, combined with market forces Work to produce. Um, and this has specific effects. And I'll come to the point of effects in a bit. Contrast this with the word responsibility. I would think about responsibility as an ethic. Uh, and I, when I use the word ethic, I don't mean to suggest a certain kind of individualized self fashioning. By ethic, I refer to forms of associated living where questions of reciprocity or care or community get foregrounded in the way in which we think about our everyday lives and uh, this is not to say that you know and I'm not necessarily pitting them against each other you know this is not to say that community arrangement might not have elements of responsabilization they very much might I'm not making a moral claim about responsibility being good and responsabilization being bad but we do see certain effects that responsabilization as a the tactic of regulation and uh, governance produce. And the tactics are apparent, for example, in given that responsabilization is an outcome of a particular language of rights uh, a language of rights that is marked by turning virtuous ideas like freedom or choice or agency you know the sovereignty in the individual self for example you know given that you know these are some of the virtues that the idea of responsabilization you know works with uh, the effects that responsabilization produces is that it makes you the agent of your own harm. And I'm using this expression from a recent piece by uh, Jacqueline Rose in the London Review of Books, where she talks about the way in which, you know, European states are treating refugee women which is that if something is something wrong is happening to you, it's because you are responsible for it. So in many ways, it's a certain, you know, an advancement of the idea of the power of agency, right? The power of agency lies not only being able to take decisions for yourself, The power of agency also lies in you being, being made culpable for the bad things that happen to you. We also see a celebratory side of responsabilization and which is what is happening if we think about, for example, the trajectory of queer politics, not only in India, but um, elsewhere in uh, the, the Euro-American world, a trajectory that, uh, the, 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 that the Indian trajectory, in fact, draws on and participates in and learns from. So this is a trajectory where the queer person emerges as, right, so uh, the, the erstwhile despised figure of the diseased queer person, you know, one whose movements need to be regulated because, you know, they are the vectors of a disease, are converted by the state into rights-bearing citizens. Now, this conversion, you know, has certain effects. The the effect that this conversion produces, and this has to do with a larger critique of rights that I attend to both in the queer politics chapter, but as well as you know the opening chapter, which is that to be a citizen requires the production of categories, and you know this is standard critique of of the liberal rights discourse that the you know, you desire citizenship status as a formerly uh, despised community who've not been accorded the the entitlements that come with being a citizen. And now you're stepping into the citizenship club. Uh, the 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 generous nation state and the generous market has now, opened its doors to you uh, for you to be treated as a citizen. Uh, but it also wants you to be a certain kind of citizen, a certain kind of citizen that presents itself in a, in a particular way that is respectable. And so the the trajectory of, of queer rights claims in India thus advances a certain image of the queer person who for example, does not have sex in public, so quote-unquote has decent sex, does not have unsafe sex, uh, meaning this person has been trained into the ways of being the responsible citizen and thus can commit themselves to an idea of modernity that the larger ethos of the Indian nation-state is in many ways committed to. Now, the story is more complicated than that because the decriminalization of the section that criminalized sodomy in India went through a very complicated journey and the state opposed it at, at, at various stages in that process where the legal challenge against that section took place. But if one actually pays attention to what was the nature of the challenge, why was the lawyers and the coalition of groups that were challenging 377, what were the terms on which this challenge was uh, built? We'll see that there were kind of there was a key word on the basis of which the primary challenge was advanced, which was that consensual sex between adults of the same sex uh, is a private matter. And so if it is happening in the privacy of somebody's home, it is no business of the state to bother itself with what kind of sex they're having. And, you know, this is not a new argument. It's an argument that's been around since the time when you know, the UN Human Rights Committee uh, decriminalized uh, a law from Tasmania uh, on similar grounds. But interestingly in the Indian scenario some of the critique that came of the privacy argument that was used by those who were challenging 377 was that those who already have the privilege of privacy are actually not being hounded by the police through Section 377. They are continuing to have sex. This is not to say that their lives might not be prejudiced. But those who are on the streets, they are being hounded by the police, intimidated by the police, not because they're having unnatural sex, quote-unquote, unnatural sex. That's the kind of sex that the section was criminalizing. So there was clearly a certain kind of class dimension built into the nature of the challenge. And we see that the class dimension, in fact, helped. Uh, the final judgment of the Supreme Court lead to the section being decriminalized. So indeed, it's an achievement. It's a moment that requires celebration because, you know, that the challenge has been mounted for such a long time and, you know, it's gone through difficult phases for this moment to appear. But it's also important to note that who will this outcome really benefit? Because poor queer people who are at the receiving end of the state's violence, are not at the receiving end of state's violence only because of their queerness. They're also at the receiving end of the state's violence because of their class position or because of their caste position. They're not at the receiving end of state's violence because they're engaging in non-heterosexual sex. It's because they just appear to be those who can actually be targeted by the state. And there's a whole gamut of other local laws that are in operation that enable the police to target them. So the standard critique really has been uh, that this is somewhat of a misplaced celebration, not to say that this achievement should be dismissed, but it is a misplaced celebration. But then there are other more, you know, sinister outcomes of this celebratory move that have also taken place that I don't get to talk about in this chapter because the final judgment of the Supreme Court comes after this chapter is written. But I offer some indications, which is, for example, that after the final judgment comes, which decriminalizes Supreme Court judgment comes, which decriminalizes this very important section the celebratory memes that kind of flooded social media, uh, you know, one of those was the 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 map of uh the Indian state kind of filled up in rainbow colors of you know the the the, 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 the rainbow flag. And that map of India was that those rainbow colors covered uh Kashmir, uh, which the the Indian government uh through an executive fiat took away any kind of self-governance uh, capacity that Kashmir had in the constitution of India. So in, in, in many ways, the achievement of decriminalization of sodomy was turned into, I am not, you know, you know, I'm not ascribing intention here to those who produce that meme, for example, but, you know, e- even in the way in which cultural imaginaries of celebration were produced, it seemed that, the you know queer emancipation was in many ways being used to advance an imagination of India, where India's settler-colonial occupation of Kashmir was normalized. So the trajectory really has been one where queer figures are making themselves responsible to advance a certain project of emancipation. And in advancing that responsabilized project of emancipation, they're emerging as citizens, but that citizenship status is producing certain effects. And those effects are, you know, the exacerbation of larger structures of violence, like, you know, uh, India's settler-colonial occupation of Kashmir, for instance, or as I talk about you know, it in, the, in, in that chapter, the productions of images of queer emancipation that are imbued with Hindu symbolism, uh, for instance. So where can you be queer and free? You can be queer and free if you are part of a Hindu family. The Queer Rights Project in logic is running parallel to this project, which is that there's a certain kind of embracing of queerness that's taking place. But that embracing of queerness is producing a certain image or idea of the good queer who is Hindu, who will commit itself to a certain idea of Indian culture who will ultimately get married and lead a certain kind of commitment to uh, monogamous uh, reproductive familial life. You'll be a good participant in capitalism's uh, promises as well. So, you know, that's what responsabilization really is. And that's the celebratory you know, dimension of responsabilization.
0: Let's turn now to culture because you think about the law through cultural products and that's something that that you were mentioning before. Fiction, poetry, photography and film are really central to your essays and I just wanted to ask how is the, the legal imagination implicated in films like Dev which is like the focus of your your essay on bollywood's law or in these portrayals of suffering that you deal with in your essay about children's of sex workers or even the short story you start the 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 short story and the poetry that make up the spectacles of emancipation essay what are the legal imaginations that play there or why do you think culture is a way or a place where you can go and find and read legal imaginations?
1: Despite being located within the discipline right from the time when I joined law school, I seem to have learned more about law uh, from sources outside of the law. This is both in terms of my political engagement as a human rights lawyer and activist, as well as somebody who. Uh, as a lawyer, finds it very boring to read judgments. You know, it's it's one of the most boring things. You know, I uh, you know a lot of lawyers find it very interesting, uh, and I'm sure it might have its interesting elements. But I find it particularly tiresome and boring, and so. So that, in in many ways, produced a certain kind of frustration. You know, so how can I keep alive my interest in a discipline where I'm located and I think I'll have to kind of be? How can I make the discipline interesting for myself? And that is what kind of drew me towards looking for law in, you know, wrong places where one wouldn't possibly go in search of law. Now, this is something that I started much before I discovered that there's already, you know, um, massive bodies of literature uh, from within the discipline of law, uh, where people have been doing this already. Uh, so when I kind of got to the uh, the Melbourne Law School to so start my PhD, I was introduced to this body of literature. And that was a very comforting moment. It was a comforting moment, because I at least felt that, you know, uh, I have other people's work to fall back on, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, uh, I can't call it a tradition, but there are conventions that I can make use of. And so, the the chapter that you're referring to, the one on on cinema that I call Bollywood's Law, it comes out of my PhD work, and uh, you know it finds you know more detailed treatment in a in a forthcoming book uh, that should be out early next year called Ways of Remembering, which is where I'm I'm looking at how an event of Mass violence is remembered simultaneously by the legal archive and the cinematic archive. I, fortunate or unfortunately, do read a judgment in that book, which I don't uh, in in this in this chapter. So my turn to photographs uh, or cinema. Primarily has to do with keeping alive my interest in law. So, you know, it's that simple thing that you do when you're in a discipline and you know that you can't step out of it. Uh, how do you make your captivity meaningful? And so in disciplinary terms, that is what took me to uh, cultural artifacts like literary works or photography photography or documentary cinema or feature films. But there's also a political reason why this happened much before I got introduced to the scholarly field of uh, law and aesthetics or law and literature. Uh, This happened because of a long-term association with the sex workers movement in in India. And as a (coughs) a human rights lawyer, I used to do a lot of human rights education work with young people, uh, lower court judges, Um, grassroots activists, uh, training them in, uh, you know, uh, international human rights law mechanisms. And film was a very kind of useful pedagogical tool that I used to use, you know, in those uh, training sessions. And so I realized that, you know, in in pedagogical terms, um, you know, I am able to for example, communicate ideas much better than holding on to conventional texts of law. Now, while doing this work with the children of sex workers at the, you know, red light district in in Calcutta, um, you know, these, these human rights education workshops, it is at that time that the Oscar-winning documentary, uh, Born into Brothels, comes out, it becomes really famous. And uh, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the chapter in the book that is co-authored with uh, my partner Devolina Datta. Um, and both of us were doing these workshops together. And we saw Born into Brothels. And in many ways, we thought that this was a fantastic film. You know, it was so beautiful cinematically. You know, we were kind of taken up by its production quality. You know, the the kind of camera work, the kind of, you know, music arrangement, Uh, So on and so forth, Uh, but then we organised the screening of the film with the children of Shonagachi, and uh, the response of the children kind of was something that we completely hadn't expected. Where the children said that they found the film to be deeply humiliating of their lives and the lives of their mothers, and we started wondering why were they saying this and why is it something that that didn't strike us as activists who have been working with these children for so long how did we miss this so that moment got us thinking about the power of images and the anesthetizing effect that aesthetization of suffering can have, even on the most discerning of viewers like us. So we were so taken up by the sophisticated aesthetics of Born into Brothlands that we missed the nature of politics that hid below the veneer of the film's aesthetics. And it was a moment of reckoning for us as activists because we realized that, you know, good political commitment doesn't go very far because we can be, you know, as gullible to the ways in which images of suffering can manipulate Viewers. And then, you know, we started researching on this to realize that images have been central to the way in which the most successful human rights projects across the world are carried out, particularly the way in which images of suffering are constructed and curated with the objective of achieving particular ends. So images are powerful. And this moment seemed to coincide in many ways with my thinking about the idea of the spectacle, which, you know, as a concept is so central to the first chapter. I think about spectacle drawing on Guy Debord's work in the first chapter merely as a conceptual tool. But with the watching of Born into Brothels, it suddenly hits us that we have now become subjects of the very kind of spectacle that we thought because of our political um, you know, attuning, we were able to expose. Born into brothel really kind of in many ways stumped us. It was the children's wisdom uh, of their own lived realities that was able to show us uh, the limitations of our politics. In many ways, that is the political reason that gets me to start thinking about how important the role of images are, not only in advancing imaginations of justice, but also the ways in which projects of injustice can be couched in the language of justice uh, when presented in uh, image form, where violence can be presented and advanced, you know, through aesthetizations of of suffering, so in many ways the film Dave uh, does something similar. One can watch that film to think about how it represents the anti-Muslim pogrom of 2002, and one would come out come, come away thinking that this film is critical of the state. This film is actually advancing a certain kind of secular commitment, but what I try and do in that chapter is to actually work against that idea of the film being one that is critical of the Hindutva project. In fact, I try and show that even articulations of secular critique might in fact end up strengthening and advancing the the Hindutva project and not in fact stalling it and that's the double bind really that you know which is what I mentioned in the in the preface of the book that the the mood of the the chapters are particularly hopeless and foreboding because every time the chapter opens up the possibility of something that we might hold on to as an idea that can offer resistance the chapter takes a turn towards failure and hopelessness. And I, and I see that the, the realm of the aesthetics is particularly generative of those possibilities. Uh, you know, aesthetics makes it possible to think about the condition of politics as that of hopelessness, the condition of politics as being complicitous, as one where politics can be nothing else but uh, a way of living with contradictions.
0: Let's talk about this idea of looking for law in the wrong places, because defining where one can look or one should look for the law is, as you've pointed out, very much kind of a disciplinary compulsion and a feature of just like producing a coherent self-understanding that is kind of robust and stands scrutiny of people outside the discipline. But it's also... A consequence or this idea that there are wrong places to look for law or to make law, it's also a consequence of larger structural forces, or it's also a consequence of power. And I want to use this idea of looking for law in the quote unquote wrong places to talk about the idea of minor jurisprudence, which is also at the core of your book or at the core of many essays. What is minor jurisprudence? And How is it related to things like cinema or the work of... A very famous uh, legal scholar that you discuss, uh, Professor Ubendra Baxi's. How are his work and film, for example, examples of minor jurisprudence?
1: So minor jurisprudence is an expression that has been introduced by two legal scholars broadly, uh, you know, Peter Goodrich and Pano Minkinen. Um, They use it in different ways, but broadly, uh, Goodrich especially draws on the work of uh, Deleuze and Guattari on, you know, on their idea of minor literature, where, you know, you displace certain standard methods of reading literary works. So, Uh, But again, I think for me, I am not so formulaic in the way in which I use the word minor. Uh, Again, it's a placeholder of sorts for me. Minor can be replaced by the word margins, for example. You know, if you look for law on the margins of legal texts, uh, which is what I, for example, do with the Upendra Bakshi chapter. Bakshi is celebrated as a constitutional law scholar or a scholar of of human rights, but very few people would, for example, read him as a feminist. Devolina Datta's work tries to do that without necessarily characterizing his feminism as the minor minor jurisprudential aspect of his work. What I try and do in that chapter is to uh, look for things in Bakshi's work that one wouldn't necessarily look for. So for example, I pay attention to the preface of a set of books that he's written. So not paying attention to the, 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 the key arguments in a book, but what does he say in a preface? There are, are there uh, jurisprudential gestures in the preface that can teach me lessons in how to care about the law, how to think about my relationship with the law? Uh, or can I, for example, look for aesthetic gestures uh, in in his writing you know the way he deploys style uh figures of speech turn of phrases so on and so forth and uh what what that enables me to do is to attend to something that i think people would mention in the passing in his work but not considered to be a key form of jurisprudential insight in his work which is, his commitment to pathos, that uh, a certain way of bringing passion to the style of jurisprudence that you do. This is not just about political commitment. This is about the way you articulate your politics, uh, the shape and form that your politics takes. Uh, So a more simple way to put this is, for example, uh, the way I use the word minor as a placeholder is move between content and form, or displace content by paying attention to form for instance, which is what, what, example for example, I would also do when I'm reading a, reading a film, that, of course, you know, the story is central, the plot is central, the characters are central. But then maybe a momentary positioning of the camera produces a certain kind of viewing affect that one wouldn't consider central, but it might actually tell a story that you'll miss if you only attend to the story, for instance. Uh, but I do want to also mention here, and because I think my ability to be able to describe what I'm doing in this book as minor jurisprudence partly is a an acknowledgement of an inheritance. And I, you know, I, I will not be, I wouldn't have been able to do this if I didn't acknowledge that inheritance. So those who have given me that word or that expression, minor jurisprudence, you know, in good greater uh and uh, are of course, you know, key figures whose works I've found particularly helpful and influential. But there are also minor jurisprudential proximates which have, been one which has been around prior to minor jurisprudence. So a critical race theorist, Mari Matsuda, amongst other critical race theorists, have used the expression outsider jurisprudence. And this has been an expression that's been around much prior to that of minor jurisprudence. So in many ways, to go to look for law in the wrong places is also an outsider jurisprudential gesture. Right. You, you know, and Matsuda uses, you know, very regular examples is, is that, you know, if somebody, you know, say you're being taught a judgment on, on rape in a law school classroom and all that the professor is telling you to do is to attend to whether the crime in question meets the statutory requirements of what qualifies as rape. And what if there are students in that class who are survivors of sexual assault? Their way of attaching themselves to their judgment will not just be about the words of the judgment or the technical task of figuring out whether the facts of the case can be used to think about uh, whether the the requirement of statutory rape are being fulfilled. You cannot, but, you know, uh, you cannot avoid the experiential from entering Uh, your way of engaging with the judgment at that stage. And then conventional teaching of law demands that the experiential is pushed out. Um, and of course, Matsuda's talking about the context of in the context of the presence of you know, non white students in overwhelmingly white classrooms in, in North America, for example. And you know, she's drawing on uh, Du Bois's idea of double consciousness, but she gives it another turn and calls it multiple consciousness. So in many ways, minor jurisprudence is a form of outsider students. It's about work bringing a multiple set of emotions and affects to bear upon the way in which I want to think about the law. And this can produce experiences of dissonance. It can produce experiences of frustration, of course, uncertainty, where you take deep dives into questioning ideas of disciplinary expertise. And But I do also think what this enables is it opens up possibilities of thinking about failure.
0: Let's go back to talking about failure. At some point in our conversation, you mentioned that there is perhaps, or that you wanna make a sort of ethical commitment to failure. And I'm just gonna use that as a preface to to our last question, to our closing question. We usually ask guests to tell us about like what they're working on or to share any new projects that they're excited about. But I want to alter that question a little precisely because of the nature of what we're talking about, precisely because of the nature of your writing, of the tone of your writing. And your book grapples deeply with questions of of how the law and violence are intimately related, right? Which is itself, uh, some might see as a contradiction. But when you think about the law and violence being intimately related, it's very difficult to be hopeful. Uh, So I want to ask you How do you engage with hope in your work uh, as an activist and as a scholar? And how do you approach the idea of a future when you are ethically committed to failure? I mean, it's quite telling that,
1: you know, that the question that we are ending on is one about failure. But, you know, I know that you have kind of pushed in the idea of, of, of hope somewhere there.
0: Because I think that they are like related when you mention, when you put it in terms of when you formulate it in terms of an ethical commitment to failure, I think that in and of itself is a gesture towards an idea of hope.
1: Let me get to the relationship between hope and failure through two Illustration. And the first illustration was introduced to me by uh, a friend uh, whose work I hold in great regard, a friend who now teaches at the Melbourne Law School, you know, James Parker, whose work is on the relationship between law and sound. James introduced me to this story about the music composer um, John Cage and the famous controversial. A piece by Cage called, you know, which has been referred to as the silent, uh, you know, performance or it's called silence. The way I understand, you know, when I, when, uh, when James introduced me to John Cage's work, particularly this one, uh, a point that he made that stayed with me um, was that in the absence of a scenario, so just for listeners who might not know, Cage produced this composition called, called Silence. And it wasn't called Silence. It, it was the, the title of the composition was the duration of the composition. I'm forgetting what the like four minutes, 36 seconds. That, that's what that's what is what is called. And if you look at the the sheet music of the composition, it's divided into three parts: part one, part two, part three. And under those parts, there are three words that appear the same word appear tacit 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 and the word tacit means silence right so nothing is happening there, there are no indications of what the musician need should play and the performance of this sheet music you know I've seen instances of being it being performed by uh musicians is a performance where you know there there's a there's a you know and i'm using the word performance. With purpose, the musician walks up to the piano, sits down on the stool, opens the lid of the piano, waits, closes the lid of the piano, waits, opens the lid of the piano, waits, and does this, you know, three times. Um, and you know, in during those periods, there's a certain, you know, sound of unease that is moving through the auditorium. Uh, for example, and. Uh, one starts wondering and this is a point that you know uh, james helps me help me see one starts wondering is this a silent performance and you know uh, in many ways i think cage's point was to demonstrate that the absence of music doesn't mean the absence of sound so silence in that scenario doesn't emerge as the other of sound it emerges as a kind of sound, as a form of sound, because because we are so drawn into thinking that if somebody is walking up to a piano, they are going to play something, and a certain kind of sound will get produced. When that sound doesn't get produced, uh, we think that there's been no music. So to start thinking about sound, uh, uh, to start thinking about silence as not the other of sound, but a certain kind of sound, because there's the Sound of the musician's footsteps, for example, walking up to the piano. The creaking of the stool when the musician sits on the uh, stool, for example. The sound of the opening of the lid, the closing of the lid. Uh, The unease of murmurs through the crowd, for example. Um, All of these constitute the soundscape of that particular moment. So clearly, there's a lot of sound present. It's just that our ears are not tuned to think about that as uh, as sound, uh, so we think about it as a space of absence. So that's the first illustration about the way in which silence is not the other of sound, but can be thought of as, as sound. The other illustration comes from you know, my own work on memory uh, that you know the chapter called Bollywood's Law makes certain references to, but which is you know, dealt with in greater detail in, 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 the, in the next book, which is called Ways of Remembering. Um, and uh, I use the word remembering in the title of that book with purpose, and this is the this is the uh, this is the illustration, which is that I think about remembering in a particularly commonsensical fashion. If we think about remembering as the opposite of dismembering right not that is the opposite of forgetting so what are we doing when we are performing this task called remembering we are piecing together something when we are piecing together something we give that something uh, again uh, a placeholder of a name and what the name that we give is memory now in this piecing together activity what we are piecing together are not only verifiable facts but also forms of fabrication so memory then is space that is hospitable to both fact and fiction, both to, you know, history and fabrications of history. And it's hospitable to these, you know, so-called um, opposing things in a way that when you start attending to memory, you'll have to give up on being able to distinguish them. So if I'm thinking about memory, I cannot say, okay, I'm going to pick cherry pick history out of memory and let go of things that don't appear historically verifiable because that will be the work of violence. I'll be violent. You know, my interpretive practices will perform a certain kind of violence if I want to dissect memory and say I'm going to take history out of it because that is verifiable, for instance. So... You know, To cut a long story short, then the ethic of failure in many ways is that nature of a commitment, is to hold on to a negative affect, to hold on to a negative affect because we are imbued in a politics that tells us overcoming difficulties is the measure or the metric of good politics. And it's interesting that it's not just those who are the the, the so-called frontline warriors uh, or activists of a movement who subscribe to this. But it's kind of almost all pervasive. Think about, you know, academic cultures that uh, measure success through metrics, how many citations, how many Scopus review publications, so on and so forth. So in many ways, I think the realm of hopefulness for me is something that, pushes us into ways of thinking about hope where we cannot escape measurement. But I guess uh, hopelessness or or failure, I wouldn't say hopelessness. Uh, I think failure uh, becomes uh, a more generative space there, because I do want to think about politics, uh, not only in the language of resistance or struggle, But I also want to think about politics in the language of vulnerability, uh, you know, uh, in the language of inability, you know, because, you know, in many ways, the the ethic of failure, while I don't mention this in 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 articulate ways in in this book, you know, the ethic of failure is owed to, you know, both queer theory and crypt theories contributions to my own, um, you know, learning where Ideas of completeness, or you know, uh, uh, you know. Every time we kind of try and measure uh, the success of activist outcomes, we are imposing metrics upon ourselves. Now, this is this doesn't mean that I want to abandon the idea of hope entirely. But I, as as you rightly point out, and as I as I think, I'm trying to argue through the two illustrations that I provided that one can so. For me, I think hope and failure are co-constitutive. You you can't abandon failure if you want to think about hope. And I think that's the condition of politics. It's, it's, It's a condition of living with contradictory inheritances, something that simultaneously harms and heals. And, you know, that's again... An expression that I use in the preface to talk about uh, how I understand modernity—that it does both things at the same time—and pan- the pandemic is an interesting instance to think about this this kind of uh, contradictory inheritance. You know, uh, as as those who are commitment to a certain tradition of thinking critically, um, we know the deep, violent origins of modern science. But at the same time, we would also want to advance our critique of anti-vaxxers. So how can you kind of remain, maintain a commitment to the advancements of modern science where you want to, you know, both, you know, urge other people to get vaccinated or get vaccinated yourself and argue against the rabid right-wing forces that are demanding that, you know, celebrate their freedom by not getting vaccinated, while at the same time continuing to advance a critique of modern medicine. I don't know whether any modicum of hope as a concept offers me any possibility to think through this contradiction. I mean, I find hope flatulent in a, in a situation like
0: this. And I will quote you because it is a provocative and all-around great thing you write here in the preface, and you write that, Modernity is multitudinous, it cures and it kills, it cares by maiming. And I, you know, if you're hearing this podcast, read the book. It's thoroughly stimulating. Oishik Sarkar, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Seba. I mean, I, I don't think I would have talked about my book, you know, in these many ways if it was a not for your uh, extremely thoughtful and generative questions. So I'm extremely grateful for your engagement.
0: No, thank you. And thank you to everyone who's been listening. We hope to have you back for another episode of new books in sociology or law or wherever we go next, looking for things in the wrong places.